Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is Carla Miranucci. It's my pleasure to introduce Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, co-authors of the best-selling book, The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress, and The Future of Trump's America. Anna is a senior Washington correspondent for Politico and co-author of Politico's Playbook. She's also the editorial director of Women Rule, a Politico platform dedicated to expanding leadership opportunities for women at all stages of their career. Anna previously worked as a reporter for Roll Call and Legal Times. She graduated from St. Olaf College. And Jake is a senior writer for Politico and also co-author of Politico's Playbook. He's a political contributor to NBC and to MSNBC. And prior to Politico, Jake worked in the Washington bureaus of the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He graduated from George Washington University and Columbia's University's Graduate School of Journalism. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman. So great to be with my political colleagues. Wow, what a week in politics again. I thought we'd start um, with the headline of the day. There are several headlines of the day, but let's start with the one from maybe about an hour ago. Uh, the president uh, told Fox News tonight uh, that he's going to block former White House counsel Don McGahn from testifying before Congress. It's done, the words he said. Uh, How is this going to play? on Capitol Hill, uh, invoking executive privilege. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this should be surprising to anybody. I think clearly the president and his team have been setting up this case, that they are going to not give Capitol Hill any information as long as they possibly can, whether it's about Don McGahn or whether it's about the investigations into his taxes or a a slew of other issues that Democrats want to investigate. Yeah, uh yeah. I would say at this point, I'll make a controversial point maybe, <laughs> that um, there isn't much at, at this moment political price for the president to pay since Democrats were just down at the White House saying they're ready to do an immig- a, a, a infrastructure deal with the president. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're the president and you're, you're used to busting norms – I mean, why not do this if, the, if there's nothing on the other end? If the, if the speaker is saying, I'm not going to impeach you, and I'm willing to do a $2 trillion infrastructure deal with you, if you're the president, I don't see on the other end, besides busting another norm, what the price is. But can the, can the president invoke executive privilege when McCann doesn't even work for him anymore? Yes. Yes. Because it, it covers his time. It's an information that he gleamed, that he learned during his time in the White House. I believe that's how that works, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, this, this whole week has just been wild. Uh, of course, Bill Barr, Nancy Pelosi this morning, uh, saying that he committed a crime, he lied to Congress. What, you know... Is there a chance he'll be impeached? What What are we looking at here? We're talking about this today. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I think... Right now, you're going to see Democrats focus in on Bill Barr instead of the president. I think there is a strong possibility that you have the House Democrats moved uh, either for contempt or potential impeachment. And I think it's a way for them to direct their energy that Pelosi might see as more useful than trying to impeach this president going into the 2020 election. Yeah, I would say um, 
he's made himself a really easy target, Bill Barr has, by, um, <laughs> you know, we were talking about this the other day. Usually administrations, no administration likes to send their cabinet members to Capitol Hill to testify under oath in hearings that are mostly political mm-hmm. grandstanding exercises. Um, but most administrations make uh, a show of trying of say, oh, well, we can't do this date. We can't do this date. Let's negotiate. And most administrations find a way to negotiate their way to a settlement where the cabinet official comes up in a limited setting and testifies about a limited set of things. Um, but this White House doesn't really seem interested in even even doing that, and, and neither does the, the, the Judiciary Committee. And, I mean, even to the, to the lesser extent, not even just Bill Barr or some of these other more contentious issues. I mean, you look at the Secretary Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin got in a, a very aggressive back and forth recently with the House Finance Committee, and you know, and, and basically said, "I don't even need to be here," and which is something you really haven't seen before in some of these kind of maybe less controversial hearings. And I just to add to that that point, this is a president, remember, who's only two and a half. I'm not making excuses. I'm just laying out a reality. Doesn't a doesn't care for the norms. B has only been at this for two and a half years and says, you know, Democrats control Congress. Why would I stick people into a wood chipper if I don't have to? <laughs> and I think that's how he views it. I, I want to get to your 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 work with Trump or your interviews with Trump, uh, but on 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 Barr. Uh, a lot of people here want to want to hear your thoughts on how Kamala Harris did. Uh, one of those headlines I saw said something like, uh, "Kamala Harris guts bar like a fish in seven minutes." I forget yeah. what it. Uh, how how do you think she did? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the overwhelming uh, result of that was she came off looking very good. Uh, I think the Senate Judiciary Committee. There's a reason why it's a very coveted position to have, is because you do have these high profile, very political hearings that are televised. And whereas I would say she's kind of faded into the background a lot on the 2020, uh, her presidential run, this was a moment Mm -hmm. for her, and she really took it. And it's a moment that helps make up for what many consider to be an uneven moment during the Kavanaugh hearings, where she uh, posited without much evidence that Kavanaugh might – was Kavanaugh, right? Might know somebody who worked for the president's law firm, and Kavanaugh said, I know a lot of lawyers, so you're going to have to be a little bit more specific – and a lot of people saw that as an uneven – that moment as kind of an uneven performance. There was no smoking gun. She there didn't. was no smoking gun. There, and he didn't appear to know anybody. Right. And that got drowned out. Obviously, the subsequent story on Kavanaugh was much more explosive. And it yeah. had nothing to do with that. Yeah. I, I want to go to um, the book uh, and your work on the playbook. If you, ha- if you don't get Politico's playbook, these guys get up at 3 a.m., 2 a.m. every day, put this thing out. It is, it is the must-read in Washington, and another one during the day, so twice a day. Um, and with, with that kind of workload that you're doing, what made you think, I mean, the election of Trump provided a whole new, you know, atmosphere, a whole new landscape for Congress. What made you want to do this book now? So we had always, Anna and I have been writing together um, for a long time, and since about 2010, 11, and um, we had always toyed with this idea of doing a book about Congress because we go up to the Capitol every single day and write about Congress and about um, the characters, the behind-the-scenes stuff through Democratic and Republican Congresses. And we were always kind of told that 
there was no book about Congress because people would find it boring because people hate Congress. And we always kind of just said, okay, well, that's unfortunate because we'd really like to do this. And then shortly after Trump was elected and inaugurated, we um, were approached by an agent who we knew who said, it's the time you got to do this book now. And we said, nah, it's okay. And then we thought about it. I remember Anna and I like kind of looked at each other weeks later, you know, six to eight weeks later. And we're like, we should probably think about this book thing. And we thought about it. And, and, um, we, we didn't know because we started writing the book in what probably June 2017, mm-hmm. but we ha- it started election day 2016 and it stretched to the end of the government shutdown, which was February 20 of this year of 2019. And um, you know we didn't know what would be contained within those two years, meaning anything could happen, and we just knew that whatever would happen in those two years with an all Republican Washington, something that. So many Republicans had been salivating at the prospect for that. They obviously didn't think Donald Trump would be leading that Washington. Everything would be interesting there within. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on Trump, I mean, you've been with him in the Oval Office. You've, uh, you've covered him at length. Uh, and you, the book provides kind of jaw-dropping detail on how the sausage is made with him, mm-hmm. uh, how literally he'll say one thing and do another. How can you can you give us kind of a uh, just a look at how has he changed the process there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he, he's unlike any politician I've ever seen or covered. I think for a couple of reasons. One, he wasn't a Republican up until a couple of years ago. So I, I think Jake says this often, but I think his first in- instinct often is to go with the Democrats and then he gets pulled back. But he also hasn't spent 30, 40 years on policy. And so in some ways, he's really willing to be malleable on a lot of different ways. He does want to get deals done. But I think they came in, like a lot of politicians do when they aren't steeped in Washington thinking, I'm a change candidate. I just beat, you know, everybody thought I I couldn't do it and I won. I'm going to change the way Washington works. And I think what you see (laughs) through this book is that kind of naivete coming up against what is really the grinding halt and mission of Washington, which is often it's much easier to kill something than it is to get something done. And you also kind of look at we we focus a lot about how people get power and exercise power. And um, there was the speaker, obviously, was Paul Ryan, who had almost hated Donald Trump for much of the campaign, didn't endorse him, got, never took a photo with him, which is an amazing thing to think about. Paul Ryan, the chairman of the Republican convention in Cleveland, Donald Trump, the man who the convention nominated for president, were not pictured together and were never on stage together. <laughs> um, and how he got along or didn't get along with, with Paul Ryan was just really um, amazing stuff and uh watching paul ryan's gesticulations and i don't mean that in a negative way but how he had to how he was you know curled up at some of the things that donald (laughs) trump did was was fascinating i mean and and, i mean some of the negotiations you talk about the daca negotiations where you know it's head spinning how he's he's flipping from one position to another how did Republicans particularly, how are they dealing with this? Uh, they don't know where he's at on any particular moment. 
I think there's a lot of frustration. I mean, I, I really do. I think that there's a lot of Republicans who wanted to get a lot of things done. They, As Jake said, they've been salivating for years to have an all-Republican-controlled Washington where you would think that they would get together, like Democrats did on Obamacare, to do some really big things. Yeah. And their first thing they did was a big belly flop on health care. And the president says, oh, I, I, I didn't know, you know, this was going to be so difficult. Like, every, everyone knew it was going to be so difficult, right? Um, it, that shouldn't be surprising to anybody. And so... I think there's a real sentiment among Republicans, and I think there was a sentiment somewhat among Democrats with Obama and the frustrations that some had is, you know, I was here before him, I'm going to be here after him, and you, they just kind of try to withstand some of the, the turmoil. You know, but the, the DACA thing was so interesting because Republicans and Democrats kind of have gener- – I'm oversimplifying here because <laughs> to explain the point, but most Republicans believe secure the border – then we'll deal with the question of legalization. Democrats believe, let's deal with the question of legalization, even in a narrow sense, then we'll secure the border afterwards. So Donald Trump goes into a meeting with Republicans and Democrats, and Dianne Feinstein, your senator, many of your senators, says, well, why don't we just do the legalization now, and the next day we'll start on the border. And Trump says, great. That sounds like it makes sense to me. And Kevin McCarthy's sitting there like on the like, edge of his seat drops. saying, no, 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 you don't mean that, yeah. right? Like, you don't mean – you mean we'll do it at the same time. So it's, it's oftentimes those kind of white-knuckled moments where the president doesn't – is unfamiliar with what his own party wants and what it, – it's just – these kind of a lot of white knuckle moments like that, you know, and, and that he puts out in the open because he often brings in cameras to uh, ca- capture the entire conversation. He's yeah. very taken with the idea of governing as a television show because that's his frame of reference. He's a he's a a television director. Well, <laughs> as as with the government shut the infamous government shutdown moment when he had uh, Pelosi and Schumer yeah. there in front of the cameras, I mean that was unbelievable to watch. How, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, they didn't know how it, would, how it happened. I mean, they, and they wouldn't have wanted to. I mean, I think Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer wanted to have a serious discussion about how could they could avoid shutting down the government, but then he wanted to bring the cameras in. And, and she said, get them out of here. Like, well, let's have a conversation without it being broadcast on every net cable network in the country. Right. And afterward, he called up – the president called up Paul Ryan and said uh, – wasn't that great? And Ryan said, no, not like it wasn't really that great, actually. <laughs> it was because all Republicans thought it was an abject disaster. And um, and Trump said to him, I'm great at this stuff. This is why I was so great at The Apprentice. And Ryan <laughs> said and, and, and Ryan said, OK. And Trump said something like, you know, um, the, the ratings. ratings, the ratings were were great. And Ryan said, what do you mean? They don't rate these things. <laughs> and, and Trump said, there are ratings for everything. <laughs> and it's funny. It's kind of like a ha-ha moment. It is funny. But that is really how he thinks. It's emblematic of the larger kind of getting inside his brain. Yeah, you, okay. But, and you've sat with him in the Oval Office. Uh, I've, I've heard of this from a number of people. And in fact, Melissa Rivers, when we talked to the other night, she was on The Apprentice, said, I, I can't believe how different he is now from the way he was on that show. I mean, you know, what is he like when you sit down with him? And and how much of this executive time stuff? I mean, is he engaged in, in the actual business of being a president? Or is he watching TV uh, and, and paying Or both, perhaps. Oh, there we go. What's your, yeah, I, I would say a couple things. I actually think 
What Donald Trump said on the campaign trail in 2016, what he was focused on most was the wall and the southern border. And a lot of the other policy fights, he he didn't have a real policy prescription for. And he has stayed fairly, that is his true north of what he cares about. I think, you know, when we sat down with him in the Oval Office, we are not White House reporters, we're Congress reporters, we're, you know, I covered money and politics for a long time. And so we went in, and I don't know that, I mean, we'd met him before, but that we really knew what to expect from him. And I think, one, I think we both found him very engaging. You can tell he likes to spend time with reporters. I think he would spend the vast majority of time spending, you know, kind of talking <laughs> to us, wanting to get our mm-hmm. sense of things as well. Um you know, so I think I, I do think there is he really plays the press in a way that sometimes I think when you're just an audience member or you're somebody who's reading the news, you think, oh, he doesn't really know what he's doing or he couldn't possibly. And I think he is much, much savvier at knowing exactly what he's doing about tweets and everything else. Yeah, I, I left and I know it's not, but I left being like, is the whole public persona put on because he's he it's not how he is behind closed doors, but and he almost mocks the idea of his public persona behind closed doors, which is head spinning because you start getting yourself into mental gymnastics about <laughs> what's real and what isn't. And all of a sudden you're in the matrix and you're like, what, what is going <laughs> which on here? Right? Where am I? Uh, but I think the unpredictability with him is what is most frustrating for members of Congress who really want predictability among uh, above everything else they want to know that they're going to come to work in the morning and they're going to be striving for the same end (laughs) that they were the day before not you know not they were they spent the last 10 years talking about fiscal discipline and now they're spending money like it's you know going out of style so that was a certainly a sea change and something but you describe a guy who wanted to talk to you guys wanted to sit down Mm -hmm. enjoyed it and yet there's all those tweets about fake news. Which is it? What, does, he, does he not really believe that? Or does he, uh, you know, is that just an act? I, I think there's, a, there's definite frustration within this administration that they feel like the press is always attacking them and not giving them a fair shake. Uh, I think that he uses fake news and trying to discredit the media, which I think is actually very uh, disheartening and potentially bad, bad, very bad for the state of our union. Uh, So just be on the record with that saying that, but I think he uses that to very dramatic effect for his, you know, very fervent base that is with him no matter what. But I think he uses and consumes the media more than any other president in the modern era since there's been the television era, right? He talks to the press more in terms of accessibility of, you know, when he walks to the airplanes. I mean, he is regularly taking questions in a way that Obama never did. And, And yes, Sarah Sanders hasn't done a press conference, but you really do get a sense uh, that he enjoys the jousting with the, the White House press corps. Yeah, and he – I think he's – he strives for elite approval and yearns for elite approval more than anybody I've seen in politics. I mean, I, Republicans – we always joke about this on Capitol Hill. Republicans think the media is going to screw them so that if they come out at even, they're happy. <laughs> and if Dem- Democrats – think the media is going to be with them. So every story they think is bad. That's a joke we have on Capitol Hill. The president is, is obsessed with the New York Times, as you guys could probably tell, and speaks to the New York Times more than any outlet, any probably outlet. besides 
Sean Hannity at Fox News. I mean, has given probably I would I would put a lot of money that he has given more interviews to The New York Times in two and a half years or whatever it's been than Obama did in eight years or even 10 years, including his candidacy. You have you have an anecdote in the book, which I thought was just just shocking that Hannity is actually included in some of the calls yeah. uh, with with cabinet members and others. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship with, with Fox News? And, I mean, is he sitting there watching Fox News all day? And what, what is, how close is he with Sean? Is Sean Hannity a de facto member of the Advisor, cabinet? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I would say yes. I think, I, I think that was one of the more stunning things when we were looking at kind of reporting on the book, that I, yes, you like, oh, of course, he's watching Fox News, sure. He's reacting to and tweeting about what's happening on. But the concept of Sean Hannity being on conference calls about health care, about the minute the president or some Republic, some of these kind of Republican Freedom Caucus members are walking out of big meetings, they're calling him up and saying, hey, what do you think about this? I mean, he is, he is giving advice in a one-on-one way that I don't know that we've ever seen a television host do. No, and and I mean, the the top twenty, the first twenty minutes of Sean Hannity's program every night. Um, <laughs> I, I try to to watch it because it's it's literally just a, a letter to the president, and it's it's a combination of what the president's thinking, what his allies in Capitol Hill is thinking, and what he they the 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 unison of those two, what they want their base to be thinking. And, um, you know, people, we have another anecdote in the book. I think when people ask us how Washington has changed the most Mm -hmm. in Donald Trump's era, it's just the prevalence of cable news and how important daytime and even evening cable news is to the, in communicating a message. We have an anecdote about Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio, who was a leader in the Freedom Caucus and how he, uh, Went, got invited to the White House, and, the, and he ha- didn't know the president. It was February 2017, and the president sit, looks at him and says, you know, great job on CNN. You kicked Cuomo's butt or something like that. <laughs> and Jordan goes back to his staff and says, I need to spend much more time on cable news because I'm speaking directly to the president. And I think before that, I mean, daytime cable television was really – a backwater, and, <laughs> and now it's 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 all prime time. Yeah, I mean this 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 matters, and that, and uh, you know this is where some of these incidents we've seen on television. The one with Speaker Pelosi you mentioned. We are of course very familiar with her here. The president is not a made up a, a nickname for her. Uh, how does he view her? Yeah, I think we sat down with the president and we kind of went through all the leaders, yeah. right, and how he viewed them and his relationship with yeah. them. And I think above all of them, he had a real reverence and respect for Pelosi that he does not have for a lot of the members of his own party. I think two things. One, he's probably known Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi much longer than he has known Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell. And he probably has a lot more in common with them, right? They kind of all operate in the same ecosystem of, you know, kind of elitism and, you know, society. And The president, what, Trump wasn't spending much time in Janesville yeah. or uh, Kentucky before right. he became president. <laughs> and the other thing I would say, uh, I think, and there's a line where he talks about it, is you know, he says, Democrats are lousy politicians, but they stick together. And I think because he can't, he has not seen that same ability of Republicans to band together on almost anything, whereas 
Nancy Pelosi really has shown him and has stared him down and won two times that she is really the most important and powerful person in Washington. Yeah, I mean, in the, and this is the interesting thing. And if you if you you got to get the book for this reason. She's been a lot of great reporting on Pelosi, and the fact, and we've seen this here, um, ad campaign after ad campaign by Republicans talking about San Francisco values and how you know they're, yeah. and she's continued to survive. What do you think are the qualities that she has that have just kept her? Uh, you know, despite all the odds, everyone even recently uh, in the speakership, people saying she was too old, too weak, wasn't going to make it. And she's she's defied them all. Yeah, I think um, she is a I, we, I could talk for an hour about this alone because we, <laughs> we spent so much time observing Nancy Pelosi up close over the last 10 years. But um, she picks a goal and stares it down and doesn't get wobbly under pressure. And she allows the world to kind of move their way to her point of view or where – not even her point of view, but where she, know, she knows the world is moving anyway. And we've told this to both Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and their aides, and they don't like this. Neither, neither likes this. But they are very similar tacticians. They are very, very and, – and, <laughs> and just watching them, you don't have to spend a lot of time watching either of them to understand this. I mean they just – I've watched – we've now watched – John Boehner's speakership, Paul Ryan's speakership, and Nancy Pelosi's speakership very closely. And John Boehner and Paul Ryan get freaked out when things are not going their way, and they uh, light their hair on fire and change course. I've never seen Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell do that ever. And that's why they're they're both quite successful. And um, Nancy Pelosi is probably in modern times, the most successful speaker, whether you like her policies or not, because what she's been able to achieve, how she's been able to wrangle people has been just absolutely stunning. And um, it's her patience. It's her personal touch. I mean, this is somebody who um, just breathes this stuff. I mean, spends 320 days a year on the road. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would just add, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I mean, I think the other thing to think about is... uh, you know, she's been doing this. I mean, she really runs Congress like a party boss, right? Her her father was yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. She was a fundraiser for a long time. I think she really spends a lot of time understanding people's motivations. Uh, and the personal touch, I think, is really important in the sense that she always writes a personal thank you note. She never, yeah. you know, she remembers people's birthdays, their kids' graduation. I think there's a real sense that, you know, even if the member doesn't agree with where she's at. She's at least trying to get them to come along. And so you don't have the same kind of disgruntlement that you see on the Republican side, where I would say John Boehner in particular kind of lost touch with the next generation of Republicans. And it's actually, you mentioned the San Francisco values thing, but it's exactly what Anna said. Like, there couldn't be a more a more inaccurate characterization or caricature of a, of a political leader than the, of Nancy Pelosi. Because Republic, Republicans want her to think, want her to be made out as some limousine liberal who is just living in like upscale circumstances, which she is, but she's like uh, her, her father was literally a party boss and she learned at his knee. And it's just, it's, it's been, that's how she runs Congress. Uh, We've got a lot of great questions here. I want to get to this one on Pelosi and then I want to go, go to some of these on Trump. They're great questions. Uh, What do you think is her best quality and what is something she can improve on? Pelosi. Yeah. Pelosi. You could she, take her best quality. I'll take the best. 
I think she, as masterful as she is inside the building, I think she's not always the best communicator for Democrats uh, in terms of the na- being the face of the party nationwide. I think that's one of the areas she struggles at. And that's not – that probably has to do with the fact that she's caricatured and Republicans have spent hundreds of millions of dollars demonizing her, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing she could probably improve on is um, I think she – this is just a function of a lot of members of Congress They're, who have been around for a while. I think – she – this is not just her, but um, uh, any criticism of Pelosi in the press is just taken very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not thin skin as much as as just she's surrounded by people who really believe in her. And that mm-hmm. there's a lot of good with that, but there's also a lot of bad. Was that, do you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. Let me go to some of the questions on Trump, and then I want to go to some of the members of Congress that we all know. Uh, this is a question. Uh, the press re- regularly summarizes what's on the president's schedule for the day. How typical is it for the president to have nothing on his public schedule? And is that not normal? It, it's not normal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I think it's fairly regular, although he, he is also doing a lot of meetings that aren't on the public schedule. Which yeah, is we, not good. Which is not good. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, we, we believe it's particularly the transparency of that is really important, but I mean, regularly, there's meetings happening that the people find out because you see somebody walking in and out of the Oval Office. Yeah. Yeah. And and we I've personally complained about that. Like, he meets with a group of members of Congress. That should be public. I don't need to find that out from them. You should be putting that on your schedule. But it... Yeah. I, to be fair, Barack Obama talked to plenty of people without making it public, not nearly as frequently as Trump does, though. Uh, I thought, this is a great question. Who do you think will be the next person in the Trump administration to resign or be fired? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've stumped him. This I have, is good. I have a guess. I, based on, you know, it's like the, I couldn't be more disinterested in the parlor game of who's up and who's down in the administration because it seems like people are both up and down on the same day. So it, it's it's tough for me to keep track, although we do. But, I mean, Wilbur Ross has definitely been the subject of a lot of speculation over the last six months. Yeah, I would also just say I think one of the things to think about, though, is there there are a lot of openings right now. And they, <laughs> they need to fill them. Like, I mean, so I actually think there's a lot more focus of trying to figure out who's going to be on the Federal Reserve Board, who's going to be mm-hmm. at yeah. some of these you State know, Department. State Department. Right. There's a lot of acting. And w- with this tension with Barr, with getting, you know, figuring out what's going to happen in the Senate to get some of these people, you know, approved, I think there's a lot more energy uh, right now in the administration on that than finding kind of the next target. And yeah. it's bad for democracy. I think we, you would agree yep. with me that to have people in acting positions who should be confirmed by the Senate, mm-hmm. it's not good to, that's why we, there's a confirmation process because the advise and consent thing. Right. So, exactly. so yeah. no, you I should mean, probably follow that. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. Um, I, I want to talk about Kevin McCarthy and get your thoughts. You've you got a lot of tremendous reporting on him in the book. He's well-known here in the Valley because he's come here many times fundraising, the whole Young Guns thing. You know, he's been called... Uh, Trump has called him my Kevin. Yeah. What's yeah. up with that? What is the relationship between them? What is it about Kevin McCarthy that has appeared to you know, be so simpatico with uh, Trump? Well, 
we'll take it back to the campaign. I mean, Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan, like molded a Republican Party or had was part of a Republican Party that was lit on fire and like, you know, thrown into a trash can when Donald Trump came along. And Kevin McCarthy wasn't, and we say this in the book, but wasn't as wed to a Republican Party in a certain image as as Paul Ryan perhaps was. So Kevin McCarthy became friends with them in the campaign. I remember uh, Kevin McCarthy once told me when Mitt Romney was the nominee that Mitt Romney should should go outside of his house, should go in his garage, put a hole in his trash bag, take his trash out and then clean it all up and put it back in the trash bag so people will see he's not like a uh you know an elitist and <laughs> and he gave that kind of advice to Donald Trump not that advice but he he's very in the same way Trump is I think into image and into how someone projects and and uh when Paul Ryan was about to pull his endorsement of of Donald Trump Kevin McCarthy never thought about that stuck with Donald Trump from the beginning to the end, there was never an inch of space between the two. And Trump really appreciates that. I also think Kevin McCarthy is very personable. And I think, you know... Likes everybody. Likes everybody. He can get along with everybody. <laughs> I think he's a political animal in the same way that Trump is in the sense of, I think, just to illustrate further what Jake was saying, like less of a policy guy and much more of, okay, how can we get things done? Who do we know? You yeah. know, he was part of that whole revolution in the Republican Party to get the majority in the House. So I think that there's a real appreciation for that. And I think also Kevin McCarthy really likes to win, and Donald Trump really likes to win. Okay, but don't, when we talk about winning, let's look at the last election here in California. He got slammed. Yes, um, yes he did. And a lot of people said he made his own members walk the plank here on when it came to things like a repeal of Obamacare, immigration, and State the, and local tax deduction. And the tax bill. Yeah. Um, he really worked hard to keep Republicans in line on the tax bill. Uh, Forget Obamacare for a second. I mean, the tax bill, and by the way, it has reversed a decade of his, of what he would consider his work in expanding. He hasn't done a good job, but he's tried to expand the Republican party Party. in California. And it's kind of gone in the opposite direction as he spent millions, spent millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, but listen, I think he thought a good economy would make up for all that, and it it clearly did not. Uh, uh, he thought that the uh, – uh, it's tough to see how he didn't see that, how he didn't see that the tax bill and how Obamacare could be could be damaging for his members. He thought they had their own identity, which would eventually shine through and, and be successful. So he's got to be worried about 2020. I mean, the prospects don't look much better <laughs> Going forward for him, it, it may be losing more seats even. I mean, what 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 do you see in his future? Um, does he still – he obviously wanted to be speaker. You you go through – you report on that whole uh, uh, drama in yeah. the book. Um, you think he ever will be speaker? Uh, I think so. I would say – I mean, we don't know yet. That's yeah. a crystal ball. It's yeah. a little bit far, far out at this point. But I would say – I think he clearly still wants to be speaker, right? I don't think he would have stayed uh, in the minority, which is a tough place to be in the House where you have no control and you have a bunch of members, the vast majority of whom have never been in the minority. And I think, you know, all of a sudden they don't control the schedule. They can't get their bills on the floor. There's a lot of disgruntlement. I think when you talk to him now, though, I think he believes his mission is to try to get them back in the majority and then be the speaker. If that doesn't happen in the next election or put it really the next two elections, I, it's hard to see him stick around for the next, you know, 
30 years like Pelosi, you know. Yeah, I think he, he wants to have a career outside of politics. He got into politics when he was 20 years old, and I don't think he sees his future. I mean, he's 50-something. Mm-hmm. His father died young. So, so did Paul Ryan's. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he sees his future in in Congress unless he wins back the majority in short order. And we talk in the book. I mean, he was actively thinking about whether he could even stick it out another two years. Right. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I think his time could be short if things don't go his way. I, I mean, you, you talk a lot about in the book about the Freedom Caucus and their incredible um, how much power uh, a small group of people in Congress has uh, and some of the, the voices on the right. Um, I, I, just talk a little bit about that and how, how uh, what's their, you know, uh, what is their clout going forward now? <laughs> um, and I also want to hear your thoughts on Devin Nunes, who we all know here in California and who has had such a uh, sort of a high-profile role uh, when it came to the <laughs> An interesting journey. Yeah. Um, well, the Freedom Caucus has clearly lost sway. Um, they were able to. They had an ama- we had a I, we spent a lot of time with Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, the two leaders of the Freedom Caucus, who were, make no mistake about it, two of the most powerful men in the world. I mean, they had veto power over any bill in Congress because they had a group of 25 people that stuck together and could block anything. And Jim Jordan said to me, you know, we're conservatives, but we're a union. And we don't believe in unions, but we stick together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was the first time that there had been a real organization of a small contingency of basically fringe members who went up against um, the leadership of their own party. And you, you don't see do- Democrats doing anything like right. that. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty stunning uh, what they were able to do. I think Devin Nunes is fascinating. Uh, you know, we didn't write the book was two and a half years, and you have to kind of pick what moments you're going to write right, about. Right. And one of them, we, we didn't write a ton about the Mueller report because we, we didn't know when it was going to come out, right, and right. that this isn't a Mueller book. That's a whole other book. But That we're not writing. No. <laughs> no, we are definitely not. Uh, but we do have a chapter but on... someone will. <laughs> on yeah, Nunes, and what I think is, is really interesting, I think if you, if, when you read the book, hopefully, you'll find is really the arc of him being really an establishment Republican, John Boehner ally. Hated, and, hated the fringe right. Oh, hated. And I went up against them, fundraised against them, and then really had a turning point um, when, uh, in his position on, on the committee and felt, felt as though the, you know, the, the Mueller investigation wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing. Yeah, he felt like it was a fishing expedition and... And I've never in 10 years covering Congress seen a transformation quite like that before. Uh, and a lot of people that know Nunez ask that question, what happened to him? Um, and I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. I think he – I think some of his suspicions about government – he was always a very suspicious guy, meaning he always thought that – I've had countless conversations with him about – how he thought unions were coming into his district, which they were, to try to defeat him. But he always thought there was malfeasance. And he, he I don't want to say he's a conspiracy yeah. theorist, but he believes yeah. in conspiracies sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I think that sometimes, I think that he, some of his conspiracy, some of his theories about government, he thought he saw and, coming and seeing through. Him on the Intel committee, I think really getting a lot more information, I think really changed his, yeah. uh, his opinion. And, and this is a member of Congress who, and, and I want to get your thoughts on, uh, um, there are, there are several who have just become stars with, with the help of cable television. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, 
and we've seen them here, here in the Bay Area. Um, Adam, well, in, in California, Adam Schiff, for instance. Hmm? How is he viewed on the Hill? How? how uh, the, 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 Republicans certainly don't like him. <laughs> um. I, I mean, I think he has clearly uh, been the tip of the spear. Uh, when it comes to pushing back against Republicans, when it comes to defending the Mueller investigation, I think he has used cable news with the blessing of Pelosi to really have that role. And I think they feel as though he's done a very good job. Republicans felt in the major- in the minority, rather, um, the Intelligence Committee on which he sits and he leads now. But in the, when he was in the minority, he f- they Republicans felt that. At the beginning, when it was still bipartisan and they were still doing things together, which didn't last very long, they felt like he would just go run to MSNBC and talk about things that they <laughs> right. were doing, and, and they didn't appreciate that. He would obviously disagree with that characterization. Really politicized what yeah. had yeah. for a long time been one of the last kind of bastions of bipartisanship. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Schiff and so many others, including Eric Swalwell now, uh, talking about impeachment. Um, We've, we've had here in California, many times Tom Steyer doing town hall meetings, gets big crowds talking about impeachment. How, how do you see, can Democrats sort of ignore uh, the, the Trump administration, uh, the views of some that it's thumbing its nose at Congress and ignoring the subpoenas, or um, is Pelosi's uh, um, view on this going to hold? That not, we don't have enough evidence yet and we need to go slow. I don't anticipate impeachment proceedings anytime soon. I mean, that could change. Like, all things could change. If Bob Mueller testifies and has a really, you know, damning uh, presentation, maybe that changes things. But I think Pelosi's a realist uh, in the sense that no Republicans in the Senate have even called for proceedings, much less impeachment. And I think she has the benefit of history and what happened with Clinton. And I don't think she wants to do a repeat performance of that. Yeah, I would say a few things. I would say that... um there's a lot, a lot of ways to go here. I mean, um, on the question of impeachment, she believes that Democrats won the majority on pocketbook issues. And I saw an interesting quote today by John Yarmuth, the last Democrat left in Kentucky who represents the Lexington or the Louisville, Louisville, Louisville I think, I think. Um, Louisville area. And he said, you know, because Pelosi always says we won on pocketbook issues and Yarmuth who's a, cha- a committee chair and close to Pelosi, said today, well, every time I go home, no one's asking me about pocketbook issues. <laughs> They're asking why I'm not impeaching Donald Trump. <laughs> so um, so uh, whether that swells or not, I don't know. I do think that the, pr- the proceedings that she's going down, meaning massive investigations, hearings, what we saw this week with Bill Barr, in many ways that's more damaging than impeachment and doesn't in many people's view, carry the political downside, which is Democrats impeaching the president and the Republicans saying, you know, no, we're not going to impeach him. Uh, but we still have a, just a number of people here in the Bay Area and, and in Northern California uh, uh, calling for impeachment. Uh, I want to get your views on some of them who have come up, who have mm-hmm. become stars on cable. Eric Swalwell, uh, right across the Bay there, running for president. Three-term congressman, not, you know, nobody knew who he was a few years back. And yet, this, what's in it for somebody like that running for president at this point? And what, what do you think is, uh, you know, how is he viewed there? I would say, I, I think it's interesting. I've been talking to a lot of strategists about this, this concept of like, oh, I'm going to be the 21st person to, <laughs> to put my thing, yeah. you know, throw my I think that was today, the 21st, right, right, you know, yeah, yeah. to raise my hand to say I should be president. And what they said to me, and I think that was 
pretty smart was there's really no downside. If you're Eric Swalwell, you're a congressman from California, three terms. You've kind of risen up uh, based on your kind of committees and with the blessing of Pelosi doing a lot of cable news. I think he's pretty good at it. And so he's from Iowa. I think he gets in the race, raises his profile, raises the fundraising ability, and potentially has the ability to, you know, look at being on a, a, right. one, a cabinet position, right? right? So I think you're seeing a number of those folks that we would say, I don't really see the path to the actual nomination, but maybe the, for the next six months, it makes sense for them. Yeah, and in a state like California where it could cost $30 million to win a statewide race, it doesn't hurt to have a fundraising base that right. you could only build by running for president. And the name idea. And I don't know that he has any interest. Yeah, and the name idea. I don't know that he has any interest in, in running statewide, but it's certainly the risk for him is relatively low yeah. Uh, yeah. for someone like Swalwell, yeah. one uh, would think. Uh, and what's your thoughts on Ro Khanna, who's the con- congressman for this district here? You know... And, and Ashley's part probably represents yeah. these folks, too. Um, it's been an interesting transformation for him, somebody who who won, if I'm not mistaken, by uh, get, winning Republican votes mm-hmm. against Mike Honda, uh, who is a longtime congressman here and who has now taken a, a much farther left political position. Definitely somebody who wants to be heard. The bigger question I have to ask, and one day Nancy Pelosi is not going to be the speaker or the Democratic leader. We don't know when that day is. I don't know that she knows when that day is. But it'll be interesting to see how California fares, because California has fared very, very well with Nancy Pelosi as speaker. And uh, it's it's irked some people, but it's a big Democratic state. And uh, how does how do people fit into the larger puzzle of the House Democratic Caucus and the party in a post-Nancy Pelosi world. Yeah, and just quickly on Pelosi, and then I'm going to get to some of these questions. You mentioned in the book that um, she was almost ready to retire Mm -hmm. uh, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, prepared to. I mean, what happens to her now? What what do you think happens if uh, uh, with the next election? Where did she go? So... I spent a lot of time with Nancy Pelosi. I covered her first speakership as a beat reporter. I think what was interesting to me about that is that she felt like if Hillary Clinton had won, her legacy of Obamacare in particular would be preserved. And when that didn't happen, she felt like she was the only person in this moment who could stand up to Donald Trump. So far, that has pro- she's been proven right on a, on a couple of instances. It'll be interesting to see what that means in the next two years. I think... She will leave when she thinks it's her time to leave, and I think she's made it very clear. No one could tell. No one can take her out. And I think she would also say, and I, I, it's really interesting to sit down with her because she's such an interesting perspective. But you know, she said, no one, no one said, here's the keys to the castle. You should be in leadership. You should be the next speaker. And so she, her point is, you know what? You think you, you can do it better than me? Then you need to run the race and try to take me out. And you know, and she welcomes that. I think. Yeah. She's actually, we said this before the race, she is the perfect speaker for this moment. She's a woman who is a strong woman who is going up against a president who's perceived by many as not being interested in strong women in power, um, polls would indicate, um, (laughs) who's unpopular with many women. And she's manages the House of Representatives unlike any person we've ever seen. Um, Yeah. And relishes it. Not someone like Paul Ryan who reminded people every day how he didn't want to be speaker um, and turned it into a martyrdom. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi wants to be speaker. Yeah. And she she jokes Nancy Pelosi's not um, – and this is a good characteristic uh, – 
uh, Nancy Pelosi is very high on, on herself, and she says she goes around the country and people ask her, why didn't you run for president? I'm not sure who's asking her that, but um, uh, she she loves the House. It's where she's made her career yeah, and has not really shown any interest in anything else. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions is, where does McConnell go from here? Nowhere. Another person I mean, who loves, <laughs> yeah, loves, loves the, the job Senate. He's in. I mean, the, he is in the job. He I would say, I mean, he's in the as Senate majority. He definitely doesn't want to be in the minority. Yeah. But as leading the Senate, he is in the, the highest job that he'll ever have. He does not want to be president. He doesn't aspire to be president. And I think within his own fiefdom, he has probably more control over the Senate than most leaders have in the in the modern times. Um, we, they talked about uh, the an infrastructure deal. You had uh, Schumer and Pelosi this week uh, talking about it. This is a big deal to us in the Valley uh, when we spend this much time on in gridlock. Uh, <laughs> Don't envy you on that. Yeah, no. yeah. Um, what is it? Is, is there any chance here of anything happening? No. no. I don't think so. <laughs> Oh, no, come I mean, on. No, I mean, you had Senate Republicans, you had John Thune, the number two Senate Republican, say this week that they would have to pay for everything of the $2 trillion plan. Find like, offsets. Find for offsets. And there's, there's zero chance that that's going to happen. I mean, could something more limited happen? Maybe. Maybe. I, I personally think, and I've been proven wrong on this a couple of I, it doesn't seem like I'm right at this moment. I think I will eventually be right on this. I do think that I think at some point, and I said this at the top, Democrats are not going to want to do business with Donald Trump. I think the political cost will be too high at some point if he keeps flouting the oversight process, the subpoena process, the – I just – if you're a Democrat – and you vote for a bill that Donald Trump voted for, and you assume that most members of Congress go home to a district that is very partisan, that very few districts are marginal anymore, you're going to get a primary challenge in some cases, or you are at risk for one. I just don't, I don't see how they could keep doing business with the president if he's acting like this. Pelosi has been good to compartmentalize it. Mm-hmm. She said, we have to do what the people are asking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. I do think there's a fear among Democrats that you have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? That you just can't be anti-Trump and, and yes. that's all you're doing. And that's, I think, particularly a lot of the new freshman members are, are feel very uh, are very cognizant of that concept, right? They want to be able to show that they're trying to do things. But I agree with you. I think at some point the political cost of making a deal with this president who's wholly unpopular in these districts right before an election, it's, it's hard. And why, why would you give the president a win on this? Yeah. I mean, we're in... May, right? I mean, it, we're going to be in election season soon. Remember, Republicans passed their tax bill. It finally passed in, what, December? Of, yeah. of the, I mean, mm-hmm. there's just not a lot of time before things get super political once again, especially in yeah. a presidential year. Yeah. yeah. When you have a bunch of Democrats running around the country. Yeah. Right. yeah. We have a lot of questions on the, on the 2020 race. So I'm going to uh, give some folks out there a chance to ask. Uh, who or what sort of campaign do you think can beat President Trump in 2020? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's the gold question. But uh, another question is similar. What demographic do you think will be key to winning the next presidential election? Uh, I, I mean, I think I'm not the first person to say this. I mean, I think black women matter 
more than uh, probably any other demographic. I think that the question is going to be who can... I mean, suburban women matter, but really, I, I think that's going to be the, the real question is who can turn out the, what happens in South Carolina. We were convinced Hillary Clinton was going to win, so you could take, a, take our, <laughs> yeah. our, our... We, we got out of the prediction business yeah. after 2016. After we gave was, a speech in Los Angeles much better. Saying, <laughs> explaining why Hillary Clinton would win. Yeah. Um, but I do think this, and this is not a complicated thing, and I think many of you will probably agree with this. I think a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because he held himself out as somebody who was uniquely qualified to break a Washington that was mired in gridlock. A lot of people believe that in states that they wouldn't necessarily support a Republican in Wisconsin, uh, uh, many, st- many states in the upper Midwest. So say that five times quickly. Um, uh, do they believe that still? And is there a candidate on the other side who makes an equally compelling argument or uh, an argument that's com- yeah that that's somewhat similar but more tailored to their traditional political points of view, and maybe people do believe that he was uniquely qualified and he did break the grid the, the gridlock the last couple of years. I think that's a tougher argument to make after being in office for four years. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is a question obviously comes from the Bay Area, but I think it goes to some of the issues. Is there anything good the Trump presidency has done? Uh, I mean, a lot of Republicans would point to the economy's going gangbusters. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, what can what can the, pre- the what do you think will be the president's argument here? You mentioned he he said he would break the gridlock. It's not happening. The economy is his strongest, right? At this point? Oh, well, I mean, listen, I think it depends on what perspective you yeah. come from. So yeah. if you're out here, maybe you don't think what a lot of what he's doing is mm-hmm. good. Yeah. But if you are a conservative, a lot of the regulations that they're And the judicial back, appointments, obviously. Uh, yeah. I, right. I think the judiciary is by far one of the right. biggest rallying cries on the right. The fact that they've gotten two conservative Supreme Court justices and there's a potential to have another one. Uh, and what they're doing at the federal bench. I mean, that is, I, I think, by and by and away, probably his, his biggest legacy at this point. I'll say the unpopular thing that you know I'm going to say, which is every time we're at an event in yes. California or New York or even D.C. <laughs> for that matter, um, people ask some variation of that yeah. question, whether it's yeah. will Republicans be popping champagne corks when he's gone or how, how much do they really want to throw him out? And, and I'm telling you, I, we traveled a bunch for this book and – there's an entire country where this guy's a rock star, the president, and people go home, members of Congress go home, some of whom have retired because of this because they weren't comfortable in the position. I'm thinking of one specifically that Anna knows. Um, and they're, and people say, why aren't you standing with the president more? Why aren't you protecting him Defend even more? Defend him more. Defend him more. Do more for him. You're, he's getting beat up and you're standing by. And and I think that gets lost a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions here is about the governing norms and ethics that people feel have been broken under Trump. Can those can can the government return to those if if he is defeated or, uh, or yeah? It's even a question the, we get a lot. I think yeah. like quite the norm busting question. I think right. we don't know. I mean, I think honestly, this president has busted a ton of norms, whether it's how he communicates with the press, whether it's flouting some of these different kind of traditions. The question I don't think we know is what, how long the tail of that is. And, yeah. and time will really only tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, a lot of questions about the role of the press. Uh, what role should the press and even Politico play in uh, protecting U.S. institutions? Uh, I mean, how, how is the, the relations between the press and Congress and the president? And will it go, you know, will, will it improve? Uh, I, I mean. Yeah, I think. Or what are people are surprised that? to yeah. hear is that the relationship 
between uh, the D.C. press corps and Congress is really terrific. Yeah. And regardless of party, the institution, um, Congress, uh, ensures that, meaning there are many areas in the Capitol where members of Congress and the only people that are allowed are members of Congress and the press. If we never hear fake news from Republicans in the Capitol, even if they're close allies of the president, Mark Meadows is a, probably the closest ally of the president, Kevin McCarthy, and I spent hundreds of hours with them they and traveled the with all them. The time. And they, they talk to the press all the time. Um, no, it's not good that the president demonizes the press. Uh, every news organization leader, New York Times, Washington Post, Politico, I'm sure, has told the president that it's not good. And the Times publisher, I think, even said to the president, you're, you're, someone could get killed here. Uh, so I think that's an appropriate thing for a leader to do. It's, I'm not, it would, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to, to, mm-hmm. to do that unless, you know. I know we're almost wondering. I would just add one quick thing, though. I think sometimes people think the press's job is to push for certain outcomes or different, you know, end games. And I think what we really believe our job is to just chronicle what's happening, who's up, who's down, um, what's happening behind the scenes. And I think that sometimes the public gets frustrated by that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I think that the, one of the questions that people want to know is, you guys are there in the center of power. You're covering it every day from dawn till dusk. What is one thing you think most people don't understand about Washington, D.C.? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, wow, silence. Um, I, think so. I would say, I mean, one of the things I know, just to lead off on your last point, though, I think there really is, and I think our book tries to illustrate uh, and shows the amount of access that reporters have and can have when you build relationships with um, these people. And not friendships, I'm not saying that, but really source uh, reporter relationships where you're in the Capitol every day, you know them, you you will write a story and, and I, you know, not that you're going to pull your punches, but I have to see them the next day and you need to be able to go back to them and ask them questions the same way. And I, th- I think there's uh, sometimes I don't think people understand how the ecosystem of that works, particularly in Washington. Yeah. And I, th- I think, I think a lot of people don't recognize or appreciate how in some cases the members of Congress are detached from the legislative process and it's mostly done by their aides. I think that's something we illustrate in the book using the tax bill as a vehicle, that it was mostly written by aides who were entrusted by the principals and who were representing the principal's interest. But I mean, if you went to any member, you know, you'll hear, this is going to sound like a jaded thing to say, but you'll hear maybe your member of Congress, I'm sure you all love your member of Congress, but someone go on TV and say, <laughs> I'm working to reform Medicare. Well, you're probably not, right? You're, the individual members of Congress, especially in the House, have very little power and sway. A lot of power is concentrated in the Speaker's office. Senate, a little less so. One person could hold up anything. But um, I think that's something people don't always recognize. Um, We've reached a point where we just have one more time for a question. And I just love this question um, as a reporter. Um, Can either of you share the best scoop you've gotten or maybe the favorite scoop you've gotten and how you got it? Oh, boy. (laughs) How you got it. I mean, are there places in Washington that you... You hang out. Are there favorite bars? Are there, is it the gym? What, go ahead. Well, we wrote a story. <laughs> it seems funny to talk about now, but we wrote a series of stories in 2015 about Aaron Schock, who was a congressman from Peoria, Illinois, who we chronicled painstakingly over months um, how he was misspending government and campaign dollars. He w- was indicted on 23 cri- uh, uh, counts. counts of 
many different things, wire fraud, honest services fraud, mail fraud, a lot of things. The Trump Justice Department, who uh, decided to throw out all those charges in exchange for a very small slap on the wrist. Trump's uh, Aaron Chuck's lawyer was George Twilliger, who was Bill Barr's number two at the Department of Justice. And this happened right after Bill Barr became attorney general. I'm sure the two aren't connected. I'm just pointing that out as a point of reference. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, we, um, it was actually interesting because we had heard that you could get reimbursed for mem- for your miles driven. Yeah. We've submitted a freedom of information request to the state of Illinois for all of his vehicle registrations and deeds of sale. And one car that he had submitted a, like 200,000 miles to be reimbursed, he sold with like 60,000 miles on it. <laughs> and it was just like, we, so to, to give a sense of how he reacted, we called him expressing, asking a question about that. We got a phone call back a couple hours later from his spokesman saying Aaron's resigning. So, but I'm sure that, yeah. but he's, the, the charges have been dropped. He was indicted on, he was indicted on related charges, charges related to that. So, I mean, is your, last last question, is your job, your your daily schedule is so amazing to me. Um, I mean, is it, is it about being out there in the, in the places where people gather in Washington or or finding those, those lawmakers underground in the train as they go back? I mean, is that you know, three quarters of what you're doing every day in terms of the job of actually finding information and getting it to readers out here. Yeah. I mean, I think we always say that I, like 90% of this job is showing up. It's being there. It's getting to know people. I, I think particularly in the capital, there's a lot of access where, you know, the trains where you know members are going to come through. And there's a real give and take and kind of push pull with a lot of these members where they want they want to be in the press, right? Yeah. They want to be, and, and their aides can be very helpful. Sometimes, you know, you can be on tense relationships with them over the years. But uh, I think so much of it is really um, being there. Being there when you don't need something, too. Right. Like being there me. when you're not going for a story. Standing outside of meeting rooms at, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning when you have nothing to ask about except, like, you know, hey, how about that basketball game last night? You know, that kind of deal. Or, <laughs> Or, hey, how's your kid, you know? And really, tra- I mean, the other thing I think that we, for this book, but I think also just in general, we've also traveled with a lot of members, and I think it's really nice to get kind of outside the Washington bubble, away from AIDS, and you really get to see kind of what drives them as humans. I think one of the things we tried to do in this book was showcase not the caricature of, of who these members are, but kind of who they really are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just quickly, who are the members we should be watching in the next year? Mm. So I've spent with women role. I spent a lot of time with um, some of the women freshman members, uh, and I think that there are some really interesting. It, they're just so much more um, unscripted, yeah. and it's not just AOC. Though I think AOC yeah. gets a lot of cre- like a lot of yeah. t- you know Twitter time and, and TV time. But I would say Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts is very interesting. Uh, I also think I mean you guys right here in right. your own Katie Porter, right. Um, right. a lot of others right. that are some of these freshman women are, are really interesting. Liz Cheney, who's Dick Cheney's daughter, is the number three in House Republican leadership. And I think she will be the number one at some point. Mm-hmm. Because I think she's really aiming for that. Uh, uh, and that she's, and she's, she's not 
she's already given some space between herself and the top two leaders, which is very rare to see. Yeah, great. Okay. We are out of time, but I hope you enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club. But please thank uh, Anna Palmer and Joe Sherman, co-authors of The Hill to Die On. And I thank you, our audience in Palo Alto, and those of you who are listening on the radio. And this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is officially adjourned. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Okay.